0: Ostentatious though it may be, I'm going to try to get through all the libs in this episode. See if see if it's possible. The first one is libpcap. It's a library for packet capture. pcap, packet capture. It's used in something like a TCP dump, where you're getting a signal and you're um, decoding it, or rather you're reading it, really. And if you've ever used TCP dump, which we will probably in this app, assuming it's already installed on Slackware, we'll definitely use it. And if not, we'll use it some other time. But if you've ever used it, then it's it's a little bit like hex dump, which we have talked about on this podcast. You just get the raw data. Now you can get the raw data a little bit uh, decoded for you over in the right hand column. But it is it's just capturing the data, the the data that maybe you had no other, logical destination for, but you can capture it because it's there, and so you can read it into into a, a text file. So that's... libpcap makes that possible. libplist is a library to read um, the Apple binary uh, property list. It's, it's a plist, is, is what it's called on Apple. If you've ever had to deal with it, you'll probably hate it, I do. It was the bane of my existence for several years, when I was administering a big network that happened to have a bunch of Macs on it, and just trying to deal with the p lists in an automated way, trying to set applications to certain defaults. You just couldn't do it. the The P format, especially at that time, I don't think there was a way to read that stuff. I mean, it was just it was just magic property list, you know, stuff that you had to do. Like on Mac, you had to go into the GUI application and click the buttons in order to generate the right P list. Sometimes it would work to do that once and then replicate it across all of the other machines, but it, I remember even that being a little bit touch and go libpng that's the portable network graphics library png png i mean it's it's this thing that that i want to love and i just never truly grew to love it so png you know i mean you've you've seen png graphics but i mean on, on the internet because they're they're all over the place you've probably seen them when you take a screenshot that's usually usually you're often often the default format png i mean it's Better than JPEG, I guess, but it always tends to be a little bit larger than I think it should be, which is kind of strange. Because I mean, then use JPEG, um, but I don't know. I always felt like I was getting a larger file size, and not necessarily that much more for what I for for the file size. It's silly. Um, but yeah i i tend these well certainly these days i tend to use webp and i guess i guess png is good for 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 pictures that matter um but but I, it's, it it's that weird middle ground right if if the picture doesn't matter you're using jpeg and also if the picture doesn't matter, why are you why you have the picture? But let's say you you know you're posting something somewhere. You you want to go as small as possible, reasonably possible. So you use JPEG. If you want big and and beautiful and everything is preserved, then you use something like TIFF. Well, TIFF is huge. What's the in between ground? It's PNG. Now PNG is supposed to offer fancy things like indexed color, grayscale. Uh, GIF, like animation um, functionality, optional alpha channels, all these other sort of thing knobs and dials that you can tweak to, to get your image exactly how you want it in terms of that balance between quality and file size. And I guess that's the part of PNG that I don't love. Everything else about PNG is great, but it's the part where I think, okay, I'm gonna use PNG, but I just want to kind of... I want to do this index color thing to to really just leave off the stuff I absolutely don't need. And then, like, it doesn't save you any space. Or it does save you a lot of space, but the quality goes way down. Uh, or you just never learn how to use... I mean, an animated PNG is possible. I think I've seen it done. But you got me. I couldn't tell you how to do it. Whereas GIF, you know, that's trivial, almost. Actually, kind of trivial. It should be more trivial. But anyway, PNG. I, you know, I, sure, I like it. It's good. It's important. Do I use it? Yes, I do. Uh, would I, do I, do I tend to use WebP instead? Well, yes, but you can say that for any image format lately. LibProxy is next. This is a, I mean, it's a, it's about network, n- network proxying. It, it is a library to answer your query as a programmer of, how do you get to, for instance, the internet. So if there's a proxy in place, then libproxy finds that and passes it to your application. So you don't have to worry about discovering proxies and and sort of figuring out the route to the internet. You just use libproxy and it, it sort of answers for you how you get to the place you want to go. According to LDD, it is linked to an application just called proxy or rather a command simply called proxy it has this this application has no man page and no dash dash help options so couldn't tell you exactly what that's for Libpsl is the public something list public uh what is it public suffix list this is a list of all the top well not all this is a list of top level domains it's tlds like you know dot com dot net dot org dot nz dot .local, probably? Let's see if that's on there. I I imagine it would be. Uh, Maybe not, though. dot .local, because it's not... that's not, like, public. Yeah, okay, so .local is not listed on here. So anyway, this is a big, big long list of sort of the, well, top-level domains that people are using In the real world, that I guess your application might want to know about. And the interesting thing about this is, this is managed independently. It's it's a community effort uh, started by Mozilla, and it's just it's meant as a big, big master list of top level domains that are valid. So if you if your application encounters a top level domain, maybe you're you're asking your user to enter you know a domain name for you to configure correctly or something like that, or or to to I don't know to register or something. If if they just enter in something arbitrary, and it's not on this list, you might you could use lib.psl psl to detect that and to determine that that's not a valid domain name, for instance. If you are helping a user, if your application does something on the internet, on the public internet, and you're asking for a domain name and someone types in example.local, it's not, .local is not on this list. So you would know that that's not a valid domain name for the purpose of your application. Top level domains have, of course, kind of really blown up lately. I mean, within the past decade, I think, I just feel like there are domains for practically everything these that yeah these days like you got you've got like .club .game .biz .me um i mean i remember when .biz and .me and, and i think us or something like that they were kind of like they were the new top level domains you know there was .com .net .org .edu .gov for the longest time like those were the domain names that you had to choose from not domain names top level domains to choose from and then suddenly ICANN started adding a couple more like .info, and people kind of hesitantly adopted those um i adopted dot info pretty heavily, because I thought that was pretty descriptive of a lot of the stuff that I do, which is distribute information. And uh, it was also, at the time, very cheap, because they were trying to sort of push that into the public view, like, hey, here, please use these domains. and And that was kind of a weird time. And then they decided, well, that worked so tepidly, let's just open up practically every word. And so now you've got things like dot business dot education dot events dot financial dot network dot place dot technology that's from mike fileter lifetime dot hosting dot uh, hosting is another thing um yeah so there's a lot to choose from now oh dot dev remember that it's a good one dot xyz i use mastodon xyz so that's familiar to me dot app dot um services dot site yeah, just a lot. So if you go to the public suffix list, which you can look at on publicsuffix.org slash list slash public underscore suffix underscore list dot dat, dat then you can look at everything that's kind of like registered in this list for whatever good that's that does you. I mean it you know it it it's probably not everything, but it it's um it is a lot. It's got a lot on there. So, there you go. And I say it's not everything because, uh, like I say, .local, well, .local isn't on there, I think, intentionally. Um, but, I mean, there are v- semi-valid domains that you can use. I should do an episode on this, on OpenNIC. Uh, O-P-E-N-N-I-C. Uh, the OpenNIC project. It It provides top-level domains that don't exist. I mean, they do exist within OpenNIC, but you have to use the OpenNIC DNS server. So you're basically pointing your network to, I guess you could say, a non-standard domain name server that recognizes additional TLDs that would not appear in the public suffix list. Is that a valid public suffix then? Well, I guess it depends on your perspective. From libpsl's perspective, no. From your perspective, if you're using it, and my perspective, if I find it on grep.geek, then yeah, that's pretty valid. All right, next is libcalculate with a q in it. It's a multi-purpose desktop uh, calculator. That is, calculate is, Uh, This is the library that drives it. You probably know about the BC command. It's the... what does BC stand for? Does anyone even know or care? It is an Arbitrary Precision Calculator Language. That's... I don't know what it stands for. BC. Um, I I feel like a lot of people are introduced to BC kind of early on. I think it's just one of those applications that people writing about a terminal and uh, the Unix commands uh it's just bc oh that's a, a a thing that you get output for from that is vaguely familiar the problem with bc of course is that you've got things like how do you do a calculation in bc something like echo 1 plus 1 is this even I, f- I forget how to use bc it's such a horrible application pipe to bc yeah that did work okay so echo 1 plus 1 pipe bc Gives you two. That's that's good. What if I do one asterisk, one pipe to BC? I get one. Okay, cool. So this is working. Still a horrible application though. I mean, it's just silly. You can launch it and use its little interactive interface, uh, which which sort of does work, but it does somewhat unexpected things, I think. Meaning that one slash two should give you a zero point five. B C just gives you the zero because you didn't ask for the point five. Well, point is there's this alternative. There's a great alternative called Calc. That's Q A L C. It's installed on Slackware. This this is what libcalculate is is providing, or or is is this is the the thing that's using libcalculate on Slackware. So if you just type in Q A L C and then let's do one slash two, it gives us the full expression so that you you know that it knows what you're doing. 1 slash 2 equals 0.5, just as you would expect. You could also do something like 1 asterisk, 2, and it writes it back out for you and gives you the correct answer of 2, and so on. So, the uh, calc is really nice, and there's a lot of different options for calc. I, I can't jump the gun and do a full thing on calc right now because we're in the lib section, but it is pretty nice cool little application, so try it when you get a chance. And that's that's the result of, of Calculate. Libraw. Libraw uh, 1394 is what this is. It's direct access to IEEE 1394. Remember last couple of episodes ago, we were talking about Lib IEEE 1284 for the parallel port? Well, this is, this is Libraw 1394 for the IEEE 1394 port, otherwise somewhat better known as Firewire. Firewire was a, I guess it wasn't proprietary because Apple, I mean, they didn't own it. So, but it was definitely popularized by Apple. And the big deal at the time was that it was faster than USB. And it turned out that the USB port, again, at the time, was literally too slow. Like it, it didn't have the bandwidth to import. I mean, from my perspective, this is what made the difference for me. It, it couldn't import video. You couldn't get like you couldn't send all the bits from a camera into your computer through USB. It's really weird to think about that, but it's true. It was USB one dot something, and it was just really really slow. I'm, this is. Talking about the space pod-looking G4 thing, the little, um, the pod people G4. Look it up. Uh, it, back then, like that, the those USB ports were so slow. You, I don't even know what they were for, to be honest. I mean, keyboards and printers, pretty much, I guess. But uh, I Triple thirteen ninety four or FireWire was Apple's uh, workaround for that, and so they would include a FireWire port on their computers. You could plug that in. To your you know, plug your camera into your computer through FireWire and 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 get video off of the camera. There were probably lots of other really good uses for it, but f- for what I was doing at the time, uh that would have that was the, the main thing for me. Let's talk about Librevenge. Librevenge stands for reversed engineering. So revenge, reverse engineering. And this is a library to decode stuff that people didn't necessarily provide the answer on how to decode. So you had things like text text documents like RTF or something like that, um, vector graphics, spreadsheets like Excel spreadsheets, presentations like PowerPoint presentations, and so on. All of these formats that for a very long time the companies that were making them just decided not going to tell you how to read those outside of our application. That, believe it or not, was a tactic of companies back before like the 20, I don't know, the 2015s, 2017, 2018, pretty recent from my point of view at the time of recording. Um, And I mean, I'm sure it it still happens. I mean, you you could, you can look at, um, at lots of companies that don't, don't publish like the 3D companies Ldraw no Zdraw Ldraws Ldraw L draw is the Lego draw is the, the 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 3D one um you know they they don't publish necessarily all the formats that they save into and so people have to figure out how to read that data and how to convert it into something possibly more useful so pretty annoying pretty stupid um, it's one of those things where I mean, I used to bang on about this a lot more, I feel, but, uh, I mean, open standards is really, really important. Like, if you're inputting data into a computer, then you, I think, as the user, have the right to to, to, to know how that data is being stored. And I can't believe that's sort of a thing that we have to fight for. That is something that should absolutely always happen. You should never lose access to something you have input into a computer. It just seems so obvious. And yet it's something that we have to continue to be vigilant about because companies will try to argue that point. They will try to get away from, from, from making th- that happen they, it, because to a lot of companies, the privilege of reading your data that you've input into their application is something that you have to continue to earn which i mean again it's just atrocious to me to even say it out loud but that's what they that's that is a practice of some companies reprehensible though it may be Librevenge, i think is aptly named uh, in that in that sense because uh, frankly reverse engineering shouldn't ever really even be necessary uh, unless it's in the sense of yeah, i looked at the source code that's not really reverse engineering though but all of the all of this information that we put into computers it should just it should be common not it should be public knowledge it should be something that people can can understand and analyze and audit for themselves because it's our data that we're putting stuff into a computer if no one uses the computer that computer doesn't do anything on its own and so there's there's an inherent sort of copyright to to what you do on a computer. I mean, I'm willing to make some concessions, like video game data, like when you input controls, you know, when you're when you're playing a video game, in other words, technically you're interacting with a computer, you're inputting data, you're you're telling a little avatar on the screen when to jump and when to when to go forward and when to go back and and so on. But I mean, I think, you know, you could arguably say, well, once you get to level five on your game, and someone else has gotten to level five on their game, you've, you've both achieved the same thing. Of course, this gets more complex, the more RPG-like it is, where you're choosing different unique power-ups for your character, and then suddenly you're on level five, but you're a completely different... you're a spell caster, and your friend is a a, a tank, and so you've got these two different sort of data sets. But again, given enough players, you you start to f- probably find what could be arguably called duplication. So maybe that's not as important as you know the that I don't know the great American novel that you're writing or 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 the the movie that you're making or the picture that you're drawing or the photo that you took, whatever. But anyway, point is when you put data into a computer, you you should own that com- that you should own <laughs> you should own that computer. You should own the data, and you should be able to always always. Uh, get to that data in a meaningful way, regardless of, of whether you've, you know, paid a licensing fee or for the application to decode it for you. LIBRSVG, that is an SVG library. It's a library for handling scalable vector graphics. SVG, I've raved about it before, I think. it's a, It's an amazing format. It's XML that describes to the computer how to draw lines. And it describes it through mathematical formula. So, rather than saying, okay, I want you to go to the 5th pixel to the right, and then go down 20 pixels, and I want you to draw a line from 5 to 20, it says, I want you to go to the uh, 5th percentage of pixels, and then go down to the 20% of pixels available, and draw a line between there. So that way if you if the user scales it up, doesn't matter. Okay, it's no longer at five to twenty pixels. Now it's from uh you know, now you've got a bigger thing, so it's it's from like ten to to forty. I don't check my math on that. Uh and then and and you've got a line that's completely smooth because the pixels between the five percent mark and the twenty percent mark, or whatever it was, ten percent mark, um has been calculated in the moment it, it's been calculated from the points and from the the any kind of Bezier information and it's not just painting in pixels as mandated it doesn't say okay well cool from five to, to 20 I cool I only need 15 pixels so I'll fill those in well no not today five to twenty five percent to twenty percent today is like 140 pixels so so fill that in and so that's what it does so to to decode all of that information, of course, librsvg is uh, is the thing that you would use. Lib sample rate is next. That's something that I'm probably using right now. It is the secret rabbit code. That's what it's called, or otherwise known as just lib sample rate. Thankfully, they didn't call it like lib secret rabbit code. This is a library to convert sample rates, and sample rates are. Um it's literally how how frequently how many samples of an audio signal a computer takes while recreating that audio signal in into a digital file. So CDs are famously 44.1 kilohertz. Well I say famously. I don't know why I said it famously, but I mean they are 44.1. That's a CD sample rate. And I guess it was famous because it just sounded so good to everyone like that. At that point, you got enough um, you, you had enough samples that's that's forty four thousand one hundred kilohertz. you had enough samples uh, per second to to recreate this sound really really crisp crisply um, without degradation. You go down to like thirty three kilohertz and you do start to, you, you start to, um you start to notice it. 48,000 kilohertz got used by uh, digital audio tape recorders, DAT recorders, and by DVDs. And, and today you can go all the way up to 96 kilohertz, but I don't feel like anyone does. I feel like a lot of people have just decided, myself included, that 48 kilohertz is enough. Like, that's what, that's what the that's the resolution of sound to the human ear i guess applications like ffmpeg and audacity and sox they'll they'll be using lib sample rate if i know my compile flags correctly or my compile options correctly LibSass, sas s a s s this is a library to implement what they call sas in c and c++ sas is was is i'm not sure popular among uh web designers who 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 really need a little bit more out of css than what css delivers itself i i'm i i'm i feel two ways about sass i feel like on the one hand it's it's over it is it is more complex than css you get to you know you can create like functions essentially in sass thereby utilizing css you know, snippets in different, for, for different objects, almost, as it were. And, and that seems useful, because then you don't have to go through a bunch of different places in your CSS and change, oh, I, I actually wanted this to be that line, that that width, or that size, or whatever. You just, you you, you declare it once, and then within SAFs you can just adjust it, you know, in that one place, and it ripples through all of the places that it gets used. There's more to it than that, but that's that's an example. That's the kind of thing that SAS would provide. Um, so SAS is more complex, and that kind of not frightens me personally, it sometimes annoys me personally, but but it, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I don't know if it needs to be that complex for everyone. So I guess SAS is nice for the people who need CSS to be boosted. I'm just really glad that it is indeed its own thing and that it's not CSS. Because I think if it was CSS, I think then CSS would would stop being quite as accessible as it is now. And frankly, CSS isn't all that accessible now. A lot of it it, it kind of it, it confuses people who who just don't don't look at the internet as as a thing that <laughs> that's generated by code, you know, or or rather they do look at it that way and that scares them. So CSS isn't necessarily amazingly accessible. I mean, a lot of people just avoid it. They just can't be bothered. They learned HTML back in 1995 and that's where that's enough for them forever for the rest of their lives. Libsass goes beyond beyond, you know, 2000 era internet. It's like the future. So, and I don't think it's... Yeah, it's not everybody's future. It is it is definitely for people who need it. This is a library to decode all of the special markup that Libsass uses, the, the special syntax that it uses. Let's talk about libseccomp. This is the uh, enhanced seccomp library. What does that mean? Well, it's a big topic and uh the the nuances i i'm not familiar enough with to even discuss but i can say that bpf stands for the berkeley packet filtering uh, system and it is just kind of what you would expect from that name i mean it's a packet filtration system so an application running on a computer can kind of communicate with the kernel and, and and tell it which packets it actually needs to receive from the kernel. So if you're running, for instance, we were just talking about tcp-dump, you could tell, well, tcp-dump tells the kernel, hey, I, or, you know, with certain switches, it tells the kernel, hey, I only want packets that have initiated the TCP connection. So don't give me everything coming in, just give me the things that, 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 that is coming back from a call from this computer, and so on. or And that's just an example, there's, you know, you can filter by lots of different things, and, and that's partly, you know, that's what BPF does. Now there's an extended BPF as well these days, and that extends it from network traffic uh, to other places like Unix, uh, Unix sockets and things like that. So extended BPF can look at even more sources than BPF could, what all that's got to do with seccomp secured computing i mean you know it's the outside world coming into your computer how do you deal with that libseccomp gives you a um a, a language uh, a filtration language so that you can you can you can just you can talk to the sort of underlying bpf system and that's really all I know about that topic. I've read several articles on eBPF specifically, and the different things they're doing with it in the kernel, and I still, I mean, I just don't have any real-world experience with it, so it's hard for me to conceptualize. libsecret, that's a gobject or g based library for accessing the Secret Service API. Is that the real name of the, the API? I guess it must be Secret Service. Uh, so this is um, a library to communicate with whatever system on, or with, with whatever subsystem on uh, a given system contains passwords and other uh, sensitive informations. Generally, that's going to be using DBus, so that it can interface with things like a uh, Secret Service and GNOME Keyring. I feel like there are a couple of different secret storage systems on Linux and I'm I'm almost tempted to say oh it's too many it's too too many to choose from but actually I I don't think so I kind of like it I I kind of like the the level of choice that you have as a programmer in terms of what what you want to actually interface with i think i think the secret stuff is really tricky uh i mean surprise surprise right (laughs) encryption and and keeping people secure on their computers is is tricky who knew um but i mean i i'm just kind of thinking of it from a how kind to your user standpoint are you so you know i mean it's obviously important to keep this stuff secret But how do you make the user aware of where their secrets actually are? How they can preserve them as a backup? How they can remove them? How they can interface with it not through your application and so on? I think one of my favorite systems for that is GPG. Uh, And maybe that's just because it's the one that I'm most familiar with. But I mean, I could extend it to, for instance, Password Store, which is the the password storage system i use it's the unix pass command uh, or the pass command which i think calls itself like the unix style password wallet or something like that i don't know um but if you if 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 you look at how that stores your data it's it's in a hidden folder in your direct, in your home directory full of just the the names of websites that you have a password for, and I think you can even obf- obfuscate that. I think I could be misremembering. Um, I, I believe you can. So, if you had a password for a site that you didn't want to just have listed in an unencrypted way, I think you can just call it anything. The, the file can be called anything. And then in the file itself, you specify the URL. I believe that's how it's done. Don't quote me on that, but I think so. Um, either way, you've just got a list of files with, you know, .gpg at the end, and you can use those for lots of different things. You can use it as a password manager for a a web browser, and there's web browser extensions that can load that sort of database. It's not really a database. It's a folder of files uh, into its memory, and that that way you have access to your passwords. But you could also, you can use it for arbitrary storage or, or whatever because it's, just gpg which i, I really like you, you know where your gnu uh your your g your gnu privacy guard stuff is you, you can you can point to that on your home directory you can point to the the files that you have encrypted as gpg it, it, it all feels very sort of out in the open the the exception there being the keyring I feel like the keyring is a little bit confusing but even that I mean you you can access it you can dump it out into a into a an encrypted file like it, it it is something that you can kind of reach out and and grab hold of if you feel the need to let's do one more then we'll do a coffee break this one is the lib g no lib sig c++ it's a callback system type safe callback system for standard C++. It implements type safe callback system that allows you to define signals and then connect those signals to any callback function. I've talked about this before when I was talking about uh, Qt's signals and slots. Is that what they call it? I think so. Signals and slots. Um, This is actually, this is basically that, but for GTK. Well, GTK MM specifically. MM being that weird C++ um, suffix that, that projects seem to use a lot. There's a, a beautiful little like, I don't know, 20, um, 22 line with with a bunch of white space, 22 lines of code example in at, on the GitHub repository. Go to libsig c++, spelled out plus plus, slash examples slash hello underscore world dot cc. It's a great little example. I'm gonna even read it here, hash include iostream, hash include string, easy. hash include sigc++ slash sigc++ dot h, that's the header file obviously. void on underscore print, parentheses const, std colon colon string ampersand str, close parentheses, open curly brace, std colon colon c out, redirect redirect into that, Um, S-T-R, semicolon, so that's literally just a function to send to uh, the output, the standard out, that's the C, out um, function, sends to standard output a string. Well, where is this string defined? Well, it's not defined yet. That's the beauty of object-oriented programming, I guess. Um, And then close curly brace. Int main, parentheses, parentheses, curly brace. Sig C, colon, colon signal, void, parentheses, const, std, colon, colon, string, ampersand, close, uh parentheses, oh, I forgot, so signal, um, angle bracket, void, parentheses, const, std, colon, colon, string, ampersand, close, parentheses, close, angle bracket, signal, underscore, print, semicolon. Okay, so what we've done there is we have created a new, um, a new object called signal, or a new, a new call called signal underscore print. That doesn't exist. That's not a function. Remember, we had a void on print. This is signal underscore print. We then invoke signal underscore print dot connect parentheses sig c colon colon ptr underscore uh, f u in parentheses ampersand on underscore print parentheses, parentheses parentheses semicolon. So we've now taken our new um, our, our new function signal underscore print and we've done a dot connect because that's because this is an instance of uh, sig c plus plus's signal variety. So we've just created a signal. And now we we're connecting that signal to something what are we connecting it to well to through the sig c colon colon ptr underscore fun a pointer function to on print that's the function we're connecting it to and now we can use that as if though it's it were a call to on print so you could do signal underscore print dot emit so now you're sending a signal out into your application space, parentheses, quote, hello world, close quote, close parentheses, close semicolon, return zero semicolon, close curly brace. And so now all you've done is you've emitted this signal out into your application's uh, sort of processing space. And on print, here's that signal and gets triggered and, and does its standard C out Uh, to whatever you've just passed it, which in this case, in this example, was the string hello world. How is that different than just calling on print? Uh, It kind of depends on the structure of your application. Sometimes, uh, certainly for a a simple hello world, that's not all that impressive. Because, yeah, you could just call on print and just have it print a string. Simple. But you can't necessarily do that if someone clicks a button. You might want to be able to pick up that click, broadcast it through your application, and anything that's connected to that button then gets executed. It's a really handy system. Uh, it, it's one of the things that makes Qt such a nice little application framework to work with. And the fact that that exists for GTKmm is really, really nice. So check that out if you're ever doing GTKmm. I guess. Now it's time for coffee. Let's go get some. We'll come back and try to finish up this episode and the lib section. i'm back with a cup of coffee this is still that grid coffee that i got from the random cafe in dunedin it is still quite quite delicious sometimes i drink it and i just close my eyes and enjoy the flavor you know i mean isn't it great when you can do that i don't know if you ever do that but you know when you just relax into a cup of coffee sometimes that's a great feeling because it's just so flavorful or rich or whatever it's good so um this has been a very satisfying bag of coffee. How are we doing here on getting through the entire lib section in this episode? Not great. So we're in the S's, that's near the clo- the end of the alphabet, but there's a bunch of T's and U's and V's and W's and X's in this section a lot more than I guess I thought and you know or than than it looked I scroll through it, and I think, I can do that. But it, it is deceptive, because a lot of these entries have three or four entries, you know, like, because there's the TXT, there's the TXZ package itself, and then there, there there's the signature for that package. So you see chunks of things, and you just kind of... You, you have to combine it in your mind. So you're scrolling through, and you're thinking, oh, that's not that many. Well, no, it's still that many. So I'm not gonna get through it in this episode, but that's okay. I mean, I don't want to ever Get to the point where I'm just trying to get through a list because then I'm just reading names of packages. You can do that yourself. That's not interesting. At least let's ponder why the packages are there for a moment. So that's what we're doing. Uh, lib-sig-seg-v is the next one. It handles errors in what's called paging, which is when... well, in it, it's memory. They call it memory pages, and I don't actually know why, but sometimes an application might try to access a a, a a section of memory that's not available to it for whatever reason. There are lots of different reasons why that might happen. A garbage collector might have come up and, and cleared that out thinking that you didn't need it anymore. Who knows? Um, so what happens when that happens? Or w- w- What do you do when that happens? Y- well, you have to decide. Your code has to... you have to code that in to your program because your program computer is not smart enough to figure out what to do when you tell it to go to memory address whatever and it tries to go there and it can't get there now it's returning what does it do does it return nothing does it try again does it throw an a, an error at, at the user does it take some other tactic in the code you have to figure that out but lib sig seg v is the library that can help you figure that out. Next up after that is I mean that's all I know about that library. I've never had to do that myself, uh, at least not with libsigsegv. I've had to catch errors before in programs, but never in a C thing with memory addresses. That's way too low level for my interest level. Um next up though is libsoundfile or libsndfile. So I'm assuming it's pronounced libsoundfile. It 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 writes and well it reads and writes a bunch of different audio formats. So we're talking uh, WAVE, AIFF, AU, RAW, a bunch of others that I've never even heard of, like Commodore Amiga, IFFSVX, I don't know what that means. I mean, I know Commodore was a computer, Amiga, I guess, was also a computer. I'm assuming because they're in the same box, they're the same computer. I know nothing about it. IR Cam SF, never heard of it. Creative VOC, never heard of it. Forge W64, vaguely remember hearing something about that. GNU Octave, which actually isn't a sound. I mean, GNU Octave is not... even though it's called Octave, it's not... it's not, it's not just a sound. You know, it, it happens apparently to produce MAT4 and MAT5, apparently, sound uh, files, but that's not exclusively what GNU Octave does, um, Portable Voice Format, PVF, never heard of that one, and a bunch of others including Apple CAF and, of course, Free Lossless Audio Codec, which is FLAC. So all of those things, and so again, you're gonna find Libs sound file linked to things like FFmpeg and Sox, and, and maybe something like Lame, maybe, um, probably, I mean, any application that needs to read and write these very common audio formats. So, let us now talk... And, you know, actually, backing up, I think there's an argument, and and it's not a great argument, but there is an argument that I personally like. It's still not great. I'm not promoting this. I'm not giving this the stamp of my approval. I just happen to actually secretly like it. I think there's an argument that an application really only needs to put out uh, um, what is it? Uncompressed or or barely compressed audio. Like, give me an exporter for FLAC, I'm happy. That's all. Don't bother coding any more than that. It's fine. I'm fine with just a FLAC exporter, because you know what? I'm going to go encode that, re-encode that myself anyway. Like I say, it's not a good argument. It, it's actually not very user-friendly. It would be a lot easier for more people, if there is, like also an AUG converter, Opus converter, um, MPEG4 converter, whatever. But, yeah, personally, from my point... from my perspective, the way I prefer to do things, I'm happy with just an exporter. Lib sound file. give me a flack, I'll go and make all the different other formats that I want myself, so, I don't know, I would almost not mind it if if more programs sort of had that as an option. You know, essentially so that I don't have to link as much necessarily against them. Again, not a great argument, but it, it is an argument, and it's something that I actually, I, I do not mind. Um, I, I, I don't think I, I can't remember the last time I've exported, for instance, an Aug or an Opus or something out of Audacity. I just don't do it. It's just not something I do. I, I export FLAC, and that is it. Okay, anyway, that was neither here nor there, I guess. Libsodium. This is a cryptographic library. You can probably guess, if you're vaguely familiar with uh, cryptography, probably guess what this provides. Libsodium. Sodium is salt. It is a library to add salt to your hashes. What that means is it's a reliable little library with a bunch of, um, I should say it's a little library with a bunch of functions that help you reliably, uh, encrypt things sort of better than, than, than not using Libsodium. So there's a, a peculiarity that, that someone noticed, uh, long ago about encoding something and that is that if you have a secret word like password 123 and you encode it then if someone else has the same word like password 123 and you encode it the results are the same now most people looking at that result wouldn't know it wouldn't know what it was it just looks like an encrypted encoded entity. But if you happen to know that encoded entity, because maybe that's your encoded entity, and then you see someone else with the same encoded entity, you think they're using the same input that I'm using. So in other words, and this is a a terrible example, but let's just do it anyway, I guess. Um, let's do, um, let's do echo password. Actually, let's even make it shorter echo pass, P-A-S-S, and pipe that through the good old Caesar cipher, so Caesar, C-A-E-S-A-R space 6. Actually, you know what, let's do a Caesar cipher of what, 2? There we go, that's even easier to recognize. So we got pass. We've offset it according to the Caesar cipher by by M-N-O-P-Q-R. Two letters. So we just shift it over two letters. P becomes R, A becomes A-B-C, S becomes S T U S uh, U U. So R-C-U-U is pass through our fake little hash there. Um, And so if anyone had the word pass and they saw R-C-U-U on a server as their secret password, they might think R-C-U-U. That's exactly what I use. That's also what this other person is using. Therefore, their password is the same as my password. But if as, as the administrator I use I add salt to the encryption that I'm using, which, by the way, Caesar Cipher is not encryption, so don't actually use it for anything. I'm just using it as a really simple example, which you're going to appreciate in a moment, because now I have to generate uh, some random characters. So if we do instead echo space pass uh, backtick t- Are we supposed to use backticks or dollar signs now? I don't know. Dollar sign parentheses tr space dash dc space uh, space capital A- Dash capital Z lowercase a dash lowercase Z zero dash nine and then redirect the input of uh, dev u random to that so left pointing angle bracket slash dev slash u random pipe head dash c I don't know three uh parentheses and then pipe that to Caesar uh what was it two now we have rcuu5dq, and, if I do it again, rcuu... Uh, rcuupwa. So, same, same password, but there are these extra characters appended at the end, and who knows what they are? Well, that's the salt. That's the thing that makes something that's the same, look different. And if we actually do like something other than Caesar, like let's just do like a SHA um SHA 1. Is it SHA 1 sum? Yeah. SHA 1 SUM. So for, for one of these I've got 131 one ending in 41F and then doing that again I've got A7F ending in F E D. So two completely different jumbles of numbers from really the same password the word P A S S pass and yet one starts out one three one eight three zero zero the other one is A seven F one two zero and again the endings are completely different so if you look at those two strings you have no idea that they start with the same root and that is because the sum total of the whole thing are are they're wholly unique they they they've got that salt added in so the salt is just a unique thing that you you add to a known value to make the encryption of it less recognizable. Now you, you need to, <laughs> you need to. Keep track of the the salt, obviously. So this this example that I'm doing, while while clever, um, I don't know what it means, right? The like, especially the the, the the one that I've just done, uh, where I'm just piping everything to SHA one sum. So I never see what the salt is. I don't know what that. I I'm just randomly generating from devu random three letters that I don't know. So in real life, this this specific methodology would not work. I would never be able to then decrypt this sha1 sum because i don't know i don't know what i've appended to it to produce these results but that's fine like you're you're you can do that you can you can keep track of the salt all you need to know is what the salt was and how to decrypt the whole string the point is that the the end result itself is not the same as something that started with the same uh, root word. And that's what Libsodium does. If you go and look at the Libsodium.org website, it's actually got a really nice write-up of of all the different things that it does. So if you're curious, or if you need to use it or something, go read it. The documentation's really, really good on that site. Libsoup. Well, for whatever reason, there's there's this thing where soup refers to HTML, HTTP, I don't know who started it, I don't know if LibSoup came first or BeautifulSoup came first, I don't know. But soup is a thing apparently. LibSoup is an HTTP client server library. Written in C, it uses G objects and the glib main loop to integrate with GTK Plus applications. It's got synchronous API so that you can use it in threaded applications, so you can make a call and then do other stuff while that call is coming back to you. Um, so that's LibSoup. Libspector. Libspector is a ghost script wrapper library. Libspector, or rather postscript, is the language of printers. It figures out how the letters need to be drawn and and uh, rasterized for, for, you know, for the printer to to form them on paper with little dots of ink, that's what PostScript is. The free and open implementation of that is GhostScript. There's a great little Ghost. Should I call it a get great? There is a GhostScript command. Its syntax is admittedly pretty weird, but I do use GhostScript quite a lot to modify things, to shrink PDFs, that sort of stuff, uh, to, to replace fonts, all kinds of things. Uh, so it's a very useful application a command libspecter wraps that up and makes it into a library so that you don't you know I mean that 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 I think I've mentioned this before like there's a difference between a library and a command a command is the thing that you as the user type into a computer now there are ways to make the computer type that into the computer you know you could do like in python there's the um the I think it's the shell I think it's just called shell now um Maybe not, but th- there's like a command where you say, okay, I want to invoke, you know, bring bring up a, a shell, sort of, uh, to Python, and hey Python, pass these words onto the shell, and you could do, like, I don't know, GS, which is the go script command, um, and that's all I can remember, dash, dash, uh, format, equals, or not equals, uh, dash format, uh, comma, um, ebook you know something like that that python would be able to parse as a as a as a dictionary or as a a list i think is what they call it um a list in python parses it sends it into the shell function uh, and and that types in the command functionally for you and returns the results to python which you can then parse and do whatever you need to do so there are ways to do that but it's a lot easier if there's just a library where you just say you know specter dot i don't know uh, you know ghost script function and and do do some ghost script stuff with that you know through the library so you don't have to you don't have to sit there and pretend like you're using an interactive shell in python you just you just use the library you make the call that's what lib Spectre can do for ghost script lib ssh multi-platform c library implementing ssh version 2 and version 1 on the client and the server side lib ssh lets you you Know the whole world of SSH is open to you. You're going to see this sort of thing linked in uh, applications like file managers that communicate over SSH, over um, r- r- probably rsync. Well, it would have to be rsync, right? Because you, you can do things, are you can use rsync over SSH? So, um, yeah, this is this is it. This is SSH as a, a library, and there's a lib SSH and a lib SSH2 doing the essentially the you know the work of SSH in a library. Let's talk next about lib TASN1. That is an AS, an ASN.1 library. That's the Abstract Syntax Notation 1. Uh, ASN.1 is an IDL, which I think we talked about, like, because there was, like, a lib IDL, or, or... I mean, I know there was IDN, but I'm pretty sure there was IDL as well. Um, either way, we, we've talked about this sort of thing before, and it is the, um... So IDL was the Interface Description Language, and and, and it's, if you just take it w- way back, I mean, it's almost, uh, I just had the name of a similar concept and it flew out of my mind, but um, it, it's a way of describing the, the requirements or the expected form of communication, and, and that's what ASN.1 is ASN1. Is handled by a lot of very big, important um, protocols like uh, LDAP, for instance. But but a bunch of stuff for like multimedia and um, and even like uh, um, mobile m- mobile stuff like GSM, global system for for mobile. Something or another uh, that that uses uh, IDL Kerberos, you, not IDL um, uh, ASN1 Kerberos, lots of different things. So so ASN1 defines basically the the format of information you want to pass from system to system, and it's just obviously really important to to come up with this stuff because that way everyone can kind of I mean really literally everyone is speaking the same language now if this didn't exist or if you wrote something and didn't know this exists and therefore violated all of its ideas or or maybe you know it exists but you're belligerent and you just don't want to talk in ways that other people can understand you I mean there there could be converters that there someone would probably write a lib belligerent converter so that when you send all of your information about your system in this wacky, backwards way that no one else uh, understands then they could use lib belligerent to then like sort of reverse engineer uh, or or at least well con- you know transform uh what you have sent but ideally that's you know like the, the less of that we have the better and it's things like ASN1 that helps everyone just kind of conform to like okay so you know it can be as simple as okay you want the top level domain first and then the domain name and then the su- the subdomain great that's the order in which i will send you the information or you want the subdomain first and then the domain and then the top level uh, d- uh, tld whatever it's called uh okay great i'll i'll do i'll I'll send it to you in that order i mean that's probably a little bit that's probably pretty simple stuff, but, you know, I mean, it can be as simple as that kind of thing. It could, it could also be, well, here's the XML schema you need to use so that everyone can just really quickly look at your XML and get all, extract all the information it needs with the context that we require. So ASN1, very important. Lib ASN1, I guess, must um, have something to do with, or what is it, lib TASN1, um, must have something to do with decoding it you know, quickly with, with C. Lib Theora, that's the Theora video codec library. I have not used Theora in ages, but Theora is a codec and uh it was it was a fine codec. I used to use it all the time. Um it it's it if you want to do essentially AUG, not just for audio, you want your you want your video to be AUG encoded as well. So that's what you're using, Theora. Um, Theora never really took off all that much. I mean, I think... was it ever included in Firefox? I have it in the back of my head that it was, but I could be making that up. Um, I mean it was a fine Kodak. Like, there was nothing wrong with libTheora. It's just, it didn't really, it didn't gain a whole lot of, sort of, popularity. Um, and You know, VLC obviously could play it, so you could, you can play libtheora still, libtheora, the library is still maintained, it's here, you can play it, you can play theora in lots of different, um, media players on Linux, so, it's, it's, it's a valid thing to use, it's just not as widespread as, well, certainly, these days, webm, which, I mean, you may as well just use webm, the quality's great, the file size is small, it's an open codec, why not, libtiff lib tiff is the tag image file format. I never knew that. tiff. tiff is uh, kind of super important. It's an uncompressed file format for image data. They're big files, but when it's really really important that you're getting full you know all the data then tiff is is one of the formats you might think about using you might also just use open exr which that's i haven't used tiff in ages i think maybe probably because open exr exists open exr i think has been developed i want to say by industrial light and magic but it could have been sony more likely it's both i think weta had a little bit of code in there as well a bunch of bunch of the different sort of um, big effect houses have kind of gone in on OpenEXR. And and the advantage of OpenEXR is that it's very, very flexible. You've got lots of different kinds of information you can add into your file. Uh, stereoscopic, I, I believe, was one of the big ones. But also like the color space and, and yeah, just lots of sort of extra data that you need to have preserved. Um, that's an interestingly big sort of consideration. I don't want to say it's a problem necessarily, although it is, but it's a consideration. If if you're working, uh, collaborating with a bunch of other system, uh, applications, or or people using applications, you do need to make sure that all the data that you put into something gets transferred over. And that can be uh, something just as sort of simple as, let's say, let's say one person is doing work in Photoshop for some reason, and they... I don't know, let's say they assign a color label to one of their layers. So that when you look at uh, the, the photograph or the graphic, and you look at the layers that are present, uh, there's one that's marked red. Like in the label of that, the name the name of the layer is red. It's trivial, but people do it all the time. And and they, they use it because we're human and we like differences. They use it to highlight something. And so if you get a Photoshop file sent to you and they say, just take a look, I just need your opinion on the red layer, or I just need you to fix the red layer, or do all your work on the red layer, whatever. Okay, great. Open up in GIMP or Creta. Is that red label retained? Well, actually it is, at least in GIMP. I haven't tried it in Krita recently, but in GIMP it, it comes up labeled. So you would you would be able to latch onto that. You could say, okay, that's the red label that they're talking about, or the the, the red layer. Um, and maybe there's a couple of red layers that, that they've marked, So, but, you know, so it, it's kind of like if you had a PDF and you highlighted a word the, or a, a, a quote that you really like, and so you send that PDF to a friend because it's a Creative Commons uh, licensed PDF. You send it to a friend you say, look at that highlighted quote I, I did. They go to look at the highlighted quote and there's no highlight because their PDF reader, for some reason, doesn't render highlights or something like that. I don't know. I don't know if that ever happens. I don't highlight PDFs uh, and then send it to people. I think I've highlighted a PDF before, but um, I can't think of whether it's something that... I I don't do it often. So anyway, um, is all that data... and and it can be more major than that. I'm kind of using almost metadata as an example, but it can be something very, very important. Like, here's a 3D model. Here's their skin. I'm gonna send this 3D model to the lighting department. Does the skin go with the model, or does the skin just get dropped by the lighting software? That's really important, and um, I have horror stories from some of the work that I've done where the skin gets dropped, and so you get the 3D model, and it's just skeleton and muscles. It's horrifying. Um, Anyway, you, you need to make sure that all that stuff is kind of retained. And Lib, not lib tiff, open OpenEXR. Why am I talking about this? Oh my gosh. This is how I, this is how, this is why we're only in the T section of Lib. Anyway, OpenEXR enables you to to do that. You can really glom on a lot of stuff onto your image, whereas lib tiff it's pretty much just the image. It's like, here's the image, here's a, you know, no compression, here's a little compression, whatever. That's it. So, OpenEXR, a lot more flexible. Sorry, that was a completely side, like a tangent, not at all related actually to what we're talking about. Okay, next up is libuni string. It is GNU Unicode string library. I mean, what can I say? It provides Unicode uh, strings for C. That's that's easy. Unicode instead of ASCII. And I think that's it for this episode. But I mean, we got through the T's and, and, you know, the S's where we started and the P's. M-O-P-Q-R-S-T. So, I mean, that was theoretically five letters, although I don't think there were any Q's. And strangely, I don't think there were any R's. Oh, there was an R. Revenge, R-S-V-G. Okay. So, so all we have now in the lib section is the U, V, um, W, and X, which, I mean, believe it or not, oh, and Y because there's a libium oh, and Z lib zip okay so there's there's still quite a lot left and of course i remind you that once we're done the lib section we're not actually out of the l directory we are just we're just past the li section so after libs there's going to be like LMDB, and Loudmouth, and LZ4, and and, uh, all the way down to, you know, Z. So, there's still quite a lot to go in the library folder, but we are almost out. Possibly one episode out uh, of the lib section. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Clatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, or tips, or just to say hi. My email address is Clatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not Clatu at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music job and I know it.